0: Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today we are joined again by Bruce Green. Bruce joined us for our series that we did last year when we were reviewing CJ's history, because he is the chair of our standards committee. But let me share more of his bio again for you. Bruce Green is the Lewis Stein chair at Fordham Law School, where he directs the Lewis Stein Center for Law and Ethics. He teaches and writes primarily in the areas of legal ethics and criminal law. And He's involved in many other organizations So we determined that for this bio for our CJS podcast, we would keep it focused on his criminal justice section activity, as I mentioned, he chairs the criminal justice standards committee, and also served as a chair of the section in the past. So Bruce, thank you again for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me back, Emily. I take that as a good sign.
0: Yes, you absolutely should. That is what that means. We appreciated your insights before as you helped us reflect on the standards and the impact that they have had over the years. And we invited you back today for your work in ethics to help us make sense of ethical questions surrounding the events of the Capitol Riot. Listeners, we're continuing our mini-series trying to help shed light and bring understanding of what we can expect to see in terms of investigations, what we won't necessarily see. And today we're focusing our conversation on questions of ethics. So I'll just dive in. As investigations continue and charges continue to be brought forward, we, as I said, wanna bring some clarity to some questions of ethics related to the events around the Capitol riot. So first, with practicing lawyers who furthered the claims of voter fraud, even after the evidence had been litigated, you know, continuing to claim voter fraud, and then there's concern or questions of were these claims inciting violence. Some are wondering about the likelihood of ethical charges being brought against these lawyers, namely Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think that I saw there have already been thousands of lawyers signing on to bring ethics charges against Giuliani. What does that mean? And then also, as you respond to that, can you also tell us what is the difference between an ethics charge versus a criminal charge?
1: Okay, so there's a lot there. So as of today, not only did two different groups of lawyers file charges against Rudolph Giuliani with the grievance committee in New York because he's a licensed New York lawyer. So even though the work he did as a litigator was in a Pennsylvania case, it would be the New York disciplinary authorities who would consider disciplining him. So not only was there two complaints against Rudolph Giuliani, but also as of this morning on February 2nd, there were complaints filed against four other lawyers by the governor of Michigan and the state attorney general of Michigan including, as you mentioned, Sidney Powell and three other lawyers. One is a Texas lawyer and the other three are Michigan lawyers. So now there are at least three different state disciplinary authorities, New York, Michigan, and Texas, that have got complaints and might be looking at whether to discipline the lawyers. And I guess the first thing I would say is I don't think we're talking about criminal conduct. So it's certainly true that lawyers can be disciplined. They can lose their licenses if they commit crimes. And there's a a provision of the ABA model rules, rule 8.4, which I'm sure all states have adopted. That subjects lawyers to sanction for committing crimes that reflect adversely on their fitness to practice law. But I don't know that anybody is accusing any lawyers of criminal conduct at this point. Now, it's conceivable if it was learned, for example, That perjurious testimony was filed in some of the election cases, and that the lawyers knowingly filed perjurious testimony. That would be not only a disciplinary violation, but a crime. But I don't think anyone's been making that accusation about the lawyers. In fact, I would note that in some of those cases, lawyers withdrew from the representation, and for confidentiality reasons, they didn't spell out precisely why they were withdrawing, but there were some folks who inferred that the reason why they were withdrawing was that they didn't want to go forward based on false testimony. So I would say that for the most part, we're not talking about criminal conduct. We're talking about other conduct, and certainly the complaints that were filed against the various lawyers was not alleging criminal conduct. So I think, obviously, the first issue that's been raised is whether the lawyers filed frivolous claims. There were some around 60 odd you know, election law lawsuits, and they pretty much all failed spectacularly. And often the courts rejected them with pretty harsh language, saying that there was really no basis in fact, and or law for them. There are provisions in the states that are analogous to federal rule of Civil Procedure 11. Some of the cases were federal cases. So judges could, in those cases, sanction the lawyers for filing legally or factually frivolous claims. And as of today, on February 2nd, there's uh, their pending Rule 11 complaint against the lawyers in the Michigan case that were brought by the city of Detroit. But in the end of the day, Rule 11 is different. From the ethics rules, the professional conduct rules, lawyers can avoid Rule 11 sanctions by withdrawing frivolous complaints. There are procedural requirements that, at least in the Michigan case, the lawyers argue were not met. But there's also a rule of professional conduct, Rule 3.1, which forbids lawyers from making or controverting positions that are without a non-frivolous basis in law and fact. And so one of the claims here is that the lawyers have filed frivolous lawsuits. And then there are various other claims that have been or could be raised. One is that the lawyers have violated their oath as lawyers in opposing a democratic election. That's a much vaguer claim. And that's a pretty novel one. I don't know that there are provisions in different states' rules. New York has a rule about engaging in conduct and becoming a lawyer, and some other states also have vague provisions. But the idea that lawyers have been acting contrary to democracy, contrary to the oaths they take as lawyers to defend and protect the Constitution, is a kind of novel claim. And then there are claims simply that the lawyers made false statements. There are a number of provisions of the professional conduct rules that forbid lawyers from knowingly making false statements of fact or law or from engaging in dishonest or deceitful conduct. And arguably, this would apply to what lawyers say not only in court, but outside court, although that's also raises interesting questions. So to the extent That, for example, Mr. Giuliani had a press conference or was talking on TV or or in social media or other places, not in the court and not necessarily connected to court proceedings, but was making claims that were false and that he knew were false, if he did, about election fraud, that is potentially sanctionable conduct as well. So that's a sort of long-winded answer to your short question about Discipline. But I think another point worth making is something about the disciplinary process, which I find fascinating because processes vary from state to state. And I'm not going to speak about the Michigan and Texas processes. But in New York, so much happens that's not public. And so unless and until there was a formal sanction, a disbarment or suspension or a formal reprimand, for example, the process is confidential. And while the subjects of the process, you know, Mr. Giuliani or whoever the lawyer is who's a respondent in the disciplinary process, could make things public if they wanted to, they don't have to, and the disciplinary authorities don't make things public. And so one thing that may be that we don't actually know for a year or two what happens in these cases. And the other point is that traditionally, there's a great deal of discretion on the part of the disciplinary authorities in these cases, there's authority not to go forward with every case brought against a lawyer. And in fact, while these may be, and certainly are in the view of of, uh, many people, really extreme cases, it would be rare for lawyers to be sanctioned, for example, in the disciplinary authority for bringing frivolous lawsuits. There are volumes of cases where lawyers brought frivolous lawsuits and where they were either sanctioned under Rule 11 or the state equivalents, or maybe they avoided sanctions by withdrawing the suits or on other procedural grounds, but where courts were prepared to find that the arguments were frivolous, it's very, very rare for lawyers to be sanctioned, disbarred, suspended, or publicly sanctioned, or even probably privately sanctioned with a private reprimand. For bringing frivolous lawsuits. And that's true of a lot of violations of rules that take place in advocacy that people would regard as not terribly serious. Think about all the lawyers who offer irrelevant evidence or make comments in summation that are inadmissible and prejudicial and improper. There are rules that address this, but it would be exceedingly rare for lawyers to be sanctioned in the disciplinary process, for that most, the judges give them a metaphorical rap on the knuckles. They may sustain objections. They may say, you know, don't do that anymore. There may be a little bit of a reprimand. But nobody thinks that these are things equivalent to committing felonies or stealing client money or the other serious wrongdoing that ought to take up disciplinary authorities' time. And disciplinary authorities are like criminal prosecutors, They make judgments about proportionality. Is this a case that's worth bringing? Was there serious misconduct? They have resource limitations, so they have to decide how to use their resources. So the idea of sanctioning some of the election lawyers for frivolous filings would be a break from how these frivolous filing cases are usually dealt with. But a lot of people think these are really extreme cases that not only... Were they maybe not just frivolous, but really frivolous? But also that the motivation for bringing them was improper in the extreme, that it was designed to subvert a democratically fair election, that it was designed to help in an effort that led to the insurrection in the Capitol that was, you know, designed to violently overthrow the election results. And so if you view this as not just a run-of-the-mill frivolous filing, but as something that's a small part of anti-democratic action that provoked an insurrection, it's easy to see why people might think this is the unusual case where frivolous filings ought to be sanctioned. I I would say also that, that there are interesting and difficult questions raised if you want to go after these lawyers for making false statements in essentially a political context outside court, everybody would agree that lawyers cannot, should not, must not lie to the judge or make knowingly false statements in their judicial filings. But to the extent that the complaints are directed at, say, Mr. Giuliani's speech outside the White House on January 6th, or directed at people's comments on tweets or social media that really were kind of disconnected from the court proceedings. I think those raise harder questions. They, first of all, they raise First Amendment questions that I'm not really qualified to talk about. They also raise questions about federalism. You know, Should state courts be making rulings on what's fair game in connection with disputed federal elections? That may be in the court's view kind of overreaching, but that's essentially what would happen if disciplinary committees went after the lawyers for political speech, because it's ultimately the state courts that are in charge of the disciplinary process. And they might prefer to be a little bit neutral there. So, you know, really fascinating questions are raised. And I'd love to fast forward a year or two and see how they get resolved if we ever really know.
0: Right. I, in my mind, as you were speaking to these questions, was wondering what sort of timeline that would be. But I think You just alluded to that. It'll probably take about a year or so before we see how it shakes out, right?
1: Well, you know, it's hard to say and every state process is different, but at least in New York, you know, the process would be something like that. They've received the disciplinary authorities got a complaint. They would send it to the lawyer and say, give us an answer in, you know, a month or two. The lawyer would answer. They might do additional investigation at the end of which they'd either drop the case or decide to file formal charges or come up with some brokered resolution like the equivalent of a plea bargain. But if they wanted to go forward and file charges, then the lawyer would be entitled to an evidentiary hearing before a referee, and then the referee would have to write an opinion. And then that's not the end, because then it goes before a panel of volunteer lawyers who review the referee's findings and they would have a hearing, and then they would write an opinion, and it's still all confidential. And then if there was a recommendation that the disciplinary authorities wanted to bring forward for some kind of discipline, it would go to our intermediate appellate court, which oversees our disciplinary process, and then you get more briefing, and they write an opinion. And then if they write an opinion publicly sanctioning the lawyer, we get to see it. So the process could take Quite long now in any of these states. A lot of steps. Yeah, that's a lot of steps. That's <laughs> yeah. that's that's a lot of process. I think that's more process than criminal defendants get in I the I guess. Yeah. And of course, you know, maybe if you not not death penalty defendants who get all kinds of post conviction remedies, but a run of the mill criminal defendant probably gets a trial and appeal, and you know, rarely does a Supreme Court take certiorari. So yeah, and of course, in criminal cases, everything's public. And in, in, you know, the, the ABA has guidelines on disciplinary process, and they recommend that the process becomes public after the formal charges are filed, not when some outsiders file a, or a former client or somebody else files a complaint, but when the disciplinary authorities investigate and believe there's something to it and file formal charges. Then the ABA would say the process ought to be open, and it is in many, many states, but New York is kind of at the extreme of lawyer protective confidentiality. So yes, at least for Mr. Giuliani, we may be waiting for quite a while.
0: Right. Okay. Well then don't hold your breath, right? (laughs) (laughs) But still a lot of really important information for us to have as we try and and follow it. So thank you for walking us through that. We're going to shift gears now to another piece of the events of January 6th. If we can... Go back to that general umbrella. Uh, In our most recent episode, we discussed a number of technology and surveillance tools that are being used in investigations following the Capitol riot, like facial recognition technology and geofence warrants, you know, geolocation, tagging. Can you please explain what ethical issues prosecutors who use this type of evidence might encounter as they work to establish probable cause?
1: Sure. So, of course, one issue is if there's illegally obtained evidence that raises concerns about using it. And um, those are maybe more Fourth Amendment issues or legal issues than they are ethical issues. You know, in general, you know, prosecutors and other lawyers can make, as we were talking about frivolous arguments, they can make non-frivolous arguments that evidence ought to be admissible. And so, You know, there's probably not going to be too many Fourth Amendment issues here. Now, you know, the other issue that you raise is probable cause. And so, you know, if you had, for example, all you had was a photograph of people outside the Capitol and a computer using a facial recognition program that identified somebody and the prosecutors did no more investigation. Then I think you'd have serious questions about whether there's probable cause as a rule of professional conduct. Rule 3.8 that deals with the special responsibilities of the prosecutor. And the first provision, 3.8A, says essentially prosecutors should not bring cases when they know there's not probable cause. And not a lot of cases where prosecutors get sanctioned for that, because there's a lot of incentives not to bring cases where you don't have probable cause. What's the point of that? But An ABA opinion of the Standing Committee on Ethics and Professional Responsibility from 2019, Opinion 486, addresses a little bit how prosecutors are supposed to deal with the probable cause determination. And, you know, it makes the point that prosecutors have to do some of their own investigation. I would think that, you know, we're talking about federal prosecutors here. Nobody's going to just rely on a facial recognition program and bring, you know, an indictment or a complaint, they're going to do investigation, make sure they got the right person and figure out what the person did and look for kinds of corroboration. But in theory, I think if you just relied on that technological stuff, you'd bump up against the probable cause requirement because A, we know that there are false positives. And B, we don't actually know how, or at least I don't know how those programs work. And probably not too many judges or prosecutors really know. And you're taking a lot on faith but you don't. We don't really know how reliable they are, and right. so any prosecutor would do additional investigation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's certainly concerns about some racial bias in the technology, right? And
1: gender bias. And gender bias. And
0: gender bias. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Yes. And so the, po- the point is, the computer algorithm may tell you this is, you know, Emily Johnson or Bruce Green, but mm-hmm. you can't take it to the bank, and no prosecutor would. At all. Yeah.
0: Is there any other sort of means of investigation that would be relevant to talk about in terms of ethical ambiguity, or is everything else like geolocation tagging using things like that?
1: You know, it, it, it's interesting that there's old ABA standards on technologically-assisted physical surveillance that deal with methods of you know, surveilling people in real time, but they don't deal with using technology to analyze information you already have. And so, you know, things like going back and getting information from phone companies about who was within a geographical area aren't going to be addressed by those standards. And what wasn't something that was really thought about. There is another set of standards on law enforcement access to third-party records that's more contemporary. It's from 2012. And so, you know, one question is, if you're asking phone companies for all the cell phone records of who was within X number of feet or yards of the Capitol on January 6th, you know, you have to comply with the law. But I see that as more a legal question than an ethics question. And I don't see a lot of ethical issues here for the prosecutors and evidence gathering. I think a lot of the techniques are going to be getting open source information from the internet and knocking on people's doors and relying on information you get from others. And then to the extent that you want to get private information, you're going to have to comply with warrant requirements and other legal requirements.
0: Okay, great. Well, Those were the main questions on my mind, but you're the expert, Bruce. Is there something that I'm missing as we look back on January 6th or the conversations around voter fraud leading up to January 6th? Is there anything that I'm missing from an ethical perspective? Well, well,
1: I did co-publish an article recently with Rebecca Royfe in New York Law School, who I, I frequently write with. And we made the point from the ethics perspective that I would say law professors who teach legal ethics and and also people like you, Emily, who do podcasts, like to think about the rogue lawyers and the ethical miscreants and the ethical problems. I think when you talk about the election results, and I'm going to say this to my students on Monday, I think there's a lot of good lawyers involved as well. My students, I think, are particularly concerned when they haven't even entered the profession yet at the black eye that the legal profession has been given by a lot of the lawyers involved in representing the plaintiffs in the election cases and in giving credence to false claims about election fraud. But there were so many lawyers and many of them we didn't see because they're behind the scenes who undoubtedly encouraged state attorney generals to do their job of certifying valid election results and not giving into pressure. And I think hats off to the judges in. Those 60-odd cases, including the President Trump appointees, who I'm sure he was banking on ruling in his favor, but who put the rule of law before, you know, whatever gratitude they had or partisan loyalties or, you know, however they may have voted in the voting booth. And then, you know, we haven't talked about the Justice Department lawyers who did not give credence to the claims of election fraud and who were undoubtedly under a lot of pressure by President Trump to do that, and who said, you know, we've looked at this and we don't see any fraud that would change the election outcome, and who were not willing to join in the Supreme Court case that Texas Attorney General brought, or otherwise to, you know, join in the cases of election fraud. So I think talking about ethics, we should talk about the lawyers who did what they were professionally supposed to do. And I think those are more lawyers, in fact, than the ones who, you know, I talked about at the very beginning, who have been the the subject of disciplinary complaints.
0: Right. Well, thank you so much for helping those of us who aren't experts in ethics. We've kind of had some of these questions bouncing around in our mind following the Capitol riot. So much appreciated.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Emily.
0: Thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.